Hello, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast. Episode 27, Cholesterol is Not the Problem. Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello and welcome to Fusion Health Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for coming back and thanks for showing up if this is your first time here. I'm Anthony Santa in studio today with Dr. Michael Smith. Michael, how are you today? I'm doing great. It's good to have you here. You too. Uh, Michael, for the sake of folks who don't remember who you are or have never met you before, what are you and what do you know? Sorry, who are you and what do you know? <laughs> uh, so I practice integrative medicine. Uh, I do that by combining the vast wisdom and tradition of uh, traditional Chinese medicine, and I combine that with the leading edge science of functional medicine and something we now call uh, evolutionary nutrition. Sounds like a, uh, a whole lot of whole lot of medical information rattling around in that head of yours. I, I have a little red wagon now. I just pull it around with me to keep all the stuff I can't keep in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I just switch them out like a computer now. <laughs> and it gets me into trouble in public, you know, but that's, it, it's working. That's probably more true than, than not, so for sure. <laughs> Uh, Michael, the last time we sat down at the mics, uh, we had a, a great conversation. Uh, episode 26 uh, was uh, very enlightening for me, and I'm sure for our listeners as well. Uh, it was called uh, Rethinking Cancer. Uh, for the people who didn't get a chance to tune into that or haven't tuned in yet, uh, can you give us a bit of a recap? So we have the kind of on-the-street consensus as a society that cancer is this insanely dangerous thing kind of like a zombie infection that once you get it it's going to keep spreading and spreading and spreading until you die or become a zombie and start biting people or something like that cancers and zombie yeah so if we take away that uh belief which is it is just a belief um, and actually look at the mechanisms of what we call malignant cells and what they do and why they're there and we start appreciating that Pretty much every aspect of the physiology and process of what we call cancer is actually natural, you know, and it may actually be a normal process um, or I would say a deeper, um, if your immune system is like the military, maybe cancer is like some super duper duper delta special forces sort of process that only comes out when your body's in a really serious kind of trouble. And many, many people have been autopsied, obviously at the end of their lives. Um, hopefully, <laughs> and uh, many people have, there's evidence that they had cancer many, many years ago and it kind of came on and then left as a disease process and they didn't die of cancer and nobody even knew they had it. So given that kind of overwhelming fact that many, many people have this process happen, come and go and, and it never actually affect them, uh, I think it's worth looking at the way we actually attack it nowadays as this crazy zombie problem because the treatment is killing more people than the actual process of cancer itself. Yeah, that was a pretty big uh, aha moment for me to sort of understand what cancer is in the body. It's a biological process, if that's the right way to describe it. Um, understanding how it's affecting us as a society. And then at the end of the podcast, you offered a bunch of things to sort of uh, deal with cancer, no differently than someone would deal with any other illness in the body. Yeah, I think everything in life has a sort of a list of do's and a list of don'ts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a very curious and inspiring uh, hour of, of podcast of, I was going to say radio, mm -hmm. 
Same thing, It was I guess. a pretty long one. It seemed more like a documentary. <laughs> um, so I guess uh, high up on the list of things to talk about, uh, cancer is certainly uh, a very, uh, dare I say, popular topic. Um, scary. It's over there. <laughs> scary topic, sure. Yeah. Uh, you've got another one for today. So uh, today we're talking about uh, cholesterol. Yep. And um, so I think about cholesterol uh, maybe once a year. And I thought about it today when I came in, but that's only because you asked me to, because <laughs> I don't have any concept of what cholesterol is or what it does in the body. So where are we going to go with this podcast today? Well, I think it would be good to start with the same thing we did around cancer, which is, I guess if I was to brand it, it would be down here on the street. You know, again, if we went outside with these little microphones and started sticking it in people's faces and saying, hey, what do you think the, the issue with cholesterol is? What, what do you think the average response would be? Uh, cholesterol is, um, I don't know, it's bad. And, uh, so I'm, I'm one of those guys on the street, <laughs> by the way, <laughs> and the microphone's in my mouth. Uh, cholesterol is bad. It's got something to do with fat in the body. And, um, I, I don't know. It's got something to do with heart health and that's just guessing. Yeah. So, I mean, the person who's guessing maybe after watching the news would say, well, there's bad cholesterol and there's good cholesterol. Uh, and I think if you eat fried food and fat, it makes the bad cholesterol worse. Uh, if the cholesterol gets bad enough, it can block up your arteries and cause heart attacks and strokes. So that's, you know, so 1980s, but at the same time, on average, what most people would have to say about it. Wow. 1980s, do we need like big hair and kind of disco music or something like that to go in the background of that well it's, it's funny when i think about trying to talk that way about something like cholesterol i really do feel like i need a wig and some money glasses just to like hide behind it i'm not saying this out loud yeah <laughs> no one will ever know it was me um if this is too early to get into the conversation when you when you mentioned cholesterol it made me think of what little i know like i said something to do with the heart so before we get into anything i want to ask you what's the difference between uh blood pressure and um I guess the uh, heart rate and uh, and cholesterol. Is there some sort of correlation between all of those? I and mean, is that something you should answer now, or is that something you want to get into? Sure. Because um, and, and so let me qualify that. I've, I've got a buddy. He's thirty four years old, and um, he got his blood pressure checked, and it was like two twenty over something. Uh, and the doctor made the face that you just made, <laughs> <laughs> like what the hell? <laughs> and um, Apparently, uh, my buddy was having, you know, he had a little bit of, uh, how did he describe it? He says, I had a little bit of blood in my soya sauce system. <laughs> so he had so much salty soya sauce kind of stuff in his diet because he was eating Japanese food and Thai food and all this sort of stuff and just piling on the flavor, a la soya sauce, um, that his blood pressure was so high and mm-hmm. scared the hell out of him. The doctor says, uh, doctor didn't address the diet. The doctor just said, here, take these drugs. And Steve sort of went, uh, dear Google, what should I do? Mm-hmm. And the word salt came up. And so he's like, I huh, wonder what has salt in it. And then um, he figured out that maybe I should start eating a little bit cleaner and greener. And he did that a um, month and a half ago. I think he's down five or six pounds um, and um, is no longer sluggish and sleepy and all that kind of stuff. So anyways, the whole idea of of cholesterol, maybe think of heart, maybe think of blood pressure, maybe think of my buddy Steve, maybe think of asking you that question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the most direct link that cholesterol has, and I'm using the term cholesterol colloquially, 
because we attribute the term cholesterol to something that's actually an oxidized, fractured, uh, damaged structure that becomes an actual plaque. So I just, I'm aware that when people say the word cholesterol, a lot of times they're saying plaque. So if you have a person who actually has enough plaque on the artery walls, and that could be anywhere, that's going to create some occlusion or blockage or less flexibility of the artery itself. So your heart has to push harder to mobilize the blood, and that's going to sometimes create higher blood pressure. Um, yeah, I think that would be the easiest thing to do, because if I start getting into more details, we're going to need a chalkboard or a holograph or something like that. I need to put on my lab coat. Yeah, there you go. But yeah, basically that's that's the, the thing for most people is, uh, you know, down here on the street, cholesterol makes your arteries thick and clogged up and then your heart has to push harder. There's textbooks of other things going on that are much more usable, but that's that's what most people think about. Okay. And so uh, in terms of uh, blood pressure versus um, uh, heart rate, is there any correlation or is there some, like if your heart rate is so much, does that mean your blood pressure is good? And if you, because I see, you know, iPhone, oh, there's a heart rate monitor. It's like, oh, okay. That tells me that my heart's actually beating. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Yeah. So a higher heart rate is going to have mostly to do with how fit you are. So people who are constantly or effectively enough exercising, they're going to have a pretty normal base heart rate, you know, maybe around 50 to 60. Uh, people who are more sedentary, people who are more overweight, people who have other congestive conditions that put restriction on, say, the flow of blood through your liver, your kidneys, uh, things like that. People who have a lot of blood sugar issues. Uh, the heart rate will just be going up higher because it takes more for the muscle of your heart or more reps, you could say, to do the same work. Hmm. Okay. And so um, if somebody has high blood pressure, would it be safe to say that they would have a higher heart rate as well? Uh, not always, no. Oh. I mean, you, you could take every possible combination of heart of blood pressure and heart rate in the sense of one being high, the other being low, or vice versa, and you're just isolating, uh, well, from my point of view, uh, the details necessary to do the detective work to figure out what the actual problem is if the person's medically ill. I mean, then the variability of what you might call a healthy blood pressure or a healthy heart rate is huge and mm. contextual. Okay. So that's uh, a bigger question that I've asked you. Mm -hmm. um, something that uh, might relate more to what we're saying today. I'm not sure. Uh, but thanks for ask, answering that question. Uh, and listener, if you're the kind of person who has these questions pop up, write them down and uh, send them to us on Facebook. Uh, Fusion Health Radio on Facebook. Look for us there. Uh, Michael is a pretty smart guy, and he does know a few things about blood pressure and cholesterol <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah, and I, I would think if I were to finish up the kind of general intro to the conversation about cholesterol, the thing that has most people, uh, especially most clinicians, the most concerned is that the drug treatment for things like high blood pressure, uh, uh, obviously higher cholesterol readings and stuff like that are some of the most dangerous and ineffective treatments known to science. I mean, honestly, I'm almost jumping up and down inside at doing this podcast because one of my favorite things to do in public speaking is to just take a baseball bat to the science around cholesterol health because it's terrifyingly, like, ridiculously, I can't even think of the word of how inept it is. <laughs> I'm sure there's a few four-letter words. Well, yeah, that's a problem. I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't want to... You know, going to keep our podcast kid friendly for those single parents at home who want to listen to these things while they make supper. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but just imagine if you're making supper right now. Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> well, lots, lots of fun words would be coming out about how messed up the whole cholesterol thing is. Yeah, sure. Okay. So, um, let's, uh, let's take a look at that then. Where do we start with the idea of cholesterol? Now that we know it's something that's kind of vague to me and to most people on the street, uh, in terms of how they understand it, um, how do you want to start or introduce the idea? I think introducing it where it actually became introduced makes the most sense. I'd say, you know, maybe over a hundred years ago, 150 years ago, lifespan, life expectancy was a bit less. Uh, people died of much more uh, overt and obvious causes, you know, with respect to obviously less uh, high-tech healthcare, you know. So in a way, some people have the sense that, you know, heart disease and some of the more modern conditions that people attribute to what we would call an industrial disease are mostly just because people are living long enough to get sick enough in those kind of decrepit aging directions. Um, and if that's predictable for most people, then the idea is or was that as science started to get better at some of its jobs, we just started seeing more people with heart disease, more people with, you know, arterial uh, occlusions and plaque just because they were getting old enough. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's always a funny thing when you think about it, because no matter what culture you ever talk to, they're all going to talk about how revered the elders are and how amazing it is that these old people get to live so long and do all these things. And, you know, I'm, and then we go back to the, you know, high school page that says, in uh, 18th century, your average person lived to 42. And we're like, wow. Wow. That all makes sense then. We'd already be dead. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Unless we were one of those revered elders who somehow managed to live to their 80s and tell stories all night. And, you know, so again, we're, we're running with some really, uh, well, honestly, inept thinking because the life expectancy and lifespan are two completely different things. Uh, which we don't need to get into right now. Uh, but just that sort of passive aggressive shrug, which is, well, we just didn't know because there wasn't enough old sick people to figure it out. So around the fifties, I would say we hit that threshold where there was enough, uh, change in diet and sanitation in standard of care that people were living older and there were more people with heart attacks and heart disease. And I'm not saying that I'm buying into that idea that, well, they just got older and got sick because that happens to everybody. Because uh, that happened in the 1950s when the industrial food supply became like an actually overt and intense transformation in the kitchen and every household in the developed world, where it, would be, it became uh, through television like the standard model of life is to come home and have a shot of alcohol in a glass with some ice cubes because you're one of the wealthy people that can afford a fridge. So clink, clink, clink. And you can wave across it, you know, <clears throat> warden, whoever beaver's mom was june <laughs> june <laughs> uh, and, and you can know 1950s you know waste your glass because your neighbor happens to be wealthy enough to also afford a fridge like and an episode of mad men basically it's mad men. yeah <laughs> and everyone's smoking because that becomes fashionable and then we're eating way way more uh, processed foods and it becomes in the 1950s were an amazing time in the sense of social anthropology or whatever, just to look at how all of a sudden everyone was compelled to have Betty Crocker cake mix in their cupboard. Although you could buy the same ingredients for probably a quarter of the price in much larger containers and make the stuff yourself. But we just became compelled as a culture to have the popular stuff you could see on TV. And again, this is the 1950s. Yes, yes, they had TV then, and it was it was operated by horses. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, but anyway, so the entire world just said, we're going to consume whatever it is that's popular on shelves. We're going to consume things like alcohol and tobacco because it's a fashion statement. Uh, we're going to change our whole, you know, larder or pantry or root cellar to this 
you know, stack of boxes and cans. So at the same time, all that's going on, and sorry if you, you thought that was obvious, but <laughs> uh, at the same time, they start dissecting more and more people and finding more and more congestion inside the coronary artery. Hmm. Now, this is one of those things that if you don't like know it, when you first hear it and you get it, it's going to give you like shivers. So just in case you're, you know, susceptible to that, get ready for some shivers, folks. But 80% or more of heart attacks happen because the artery that feeds your heart, which is the coronary artery, gets so occluded that your heart can't get the blood your heart needs. Okay, hang on a sec. Occluded means... Uh, pipe full of goo. Bunged up. Rust. Uh, no ninjas with shields and swords saying, you can't pass. <laughs> okay. But the, the thing that's the real takeaway is that when we think of just sort of uh, cardiovascular disease, heart disease, we think it's just, it could be, you have a, could have a clot anywhere and everywhere, and maybe the clot breaks off and gets stuck somewhere, causing like a thrombosis or something, or it gets stuck causing a stroke or, you know, other things that can happen. So we just think about, you know, heart is a pump and some blood vessel somewhere got stuck. But when you actually notice that over 80% of actual heart attacks that happen because of uh, anything to do with oxidized cholesterol and placking, most of the placking is happening with the gas pipe going right into the muscle of your heart, right? So when we're talking about coronary artery disease, the reason why that's important is why is it that there's so much fat and cholesterol going into the gas you know, pipe that's supposed to feed your heart. Hmm. You'd think the body would figure out a, another place to put all that messy crap. Yeah. <laughs> right. So here, here's the, the reason why, again, this is the best place to start thinking about it is it turns out that one of the things that uh, your liver is constantly doing is producing these little packages of triglyceride and fat love. It puts in a magical kidney we're going to learn about later that it feeds to the heart. Almost like, here's the chocolates, I love you. <laughs> or, oh, sorry, it's around Christmas, so everyone's talking about giving each other candy. But So the liver is constantly sending these packages of fats and triglycerides to give the heart muscles the chemical fuel to keep you running around doing your stuff. Okay, so that's so the fact that that uh, artery is occluded mm -hmm. is maybe um, an ordinary function. Well, getting, all, yeah, getting the triglycerides, the blood sugars, and the fats to the heart muscle, that's normal. That's the normal function. But somewhere along the line, it gets messed up. Some Something has to have had changed to whatever's going on in your liver and however it is your heart's receiving those molecules because they're getting jammed up in the place where they're supposed to be hmm. okay. to the point where they actually can kill you. Right. That doesn't seem like an evolutionary hack. <laughs> And it doesn't seem like it, it would throughout a, any, any kind of history be that common of a problem or else the heart attack would have always been like in every indigenous culture, the, you know, oogie boogie man comes and makes people grab their chest and fall over. You know, mm. I, think, I think it would have been because it's like such a big thing in modern culture. We just naturally project onto every other society. Oh, it must have been bad for them like this too. You mean it wasn't like heart attacks is kind of like a, uh, I think you already said it, an industrial disease, a disease of affluence, a well, modern disease. Well, I mean, that's what we're going to have to call it. But I mean, and when you look, when we, as we get into the mechanics, it gets really, really obvious. But uh, just on that context, if you went back to look at uh, if it's uh, Eskimos, if it's people in Zimbabwe or the mountains of Sweden or someplace where they're still eating and living the way they did, you know, a long, long time ago, they have almost no heart disease. 
Wow. Right? You look at, say, like the Mediterranean diet where they eat lots of fats and also lots of vegetables, lots of fish, and they avoid a whole bunch of crap because they still live the way they always have, and more importantly, they share meals. So food culture is not only eat the right nutrients, it's, you know, a time of celebration and connection, which is also super healthy, you know. So just saying there's something really goofy going on between your liver and the actual way your heart uses those chemicals uh, because at no other time in human history or in any other culture has this become a constant problem for most people. And so getting back to your original point then, that, that sort of um, downward spiral of heart health started in the 50s when we started mm-hmm. drinking and smoking and eating TV dinners and Wonder Bread and all that other kind of yeah crap. <laughs> whatever whatever the you know TV compels you to throw in your shopping cart. Yeah, which is kind of curious because I think uh, during, the, uh, during the war, uh, people were a lot more mindful uh, eating and uh, whole foods and growing things in their gardens and uh, just eating cleaner and greener because they had to. Yeah, I mean, and, then, and that, I think that was one of the, again, from a social anthropology point of view, one of the best snippets for us to reflect on today. You know, mm-hmm. not only could we, because right now, I mean, obviously, and I'm getting way off topic here, but um, if in the 40s, if the USA being the, one of the biggest economies ever, uh, could retool its entire industry to go away from making cars to making weapons, tanks, and bombs. Within two years, they literally flipped to Detroit in their entire motor vehicle industry into a war industry. I'm not saying that was the best decision ever. I'm just saying, look, people can do things like change your entire infrastructure in a very short period of time, which we could probably do again now in the sense of electric cars and solar panels or whatever. When you brought up the war and people using their yards for gardens and you know everything was... Uh, basically restricted in the sense that, you know, every household gets maybe a cup of sugar a month instead of buy the, buy it by the 25 pound bag. Yay. So, you know, all, all of the excess and all of the crap was just by default removed from the system. Mm-hmm. And after the war, it was, you know, 180, 180 degree complete turnaround, which is okay. We kick butt. We're great. Everybody owes us money. Let's go and party. Yeah. Oh, very interesting. Okay, so let's see if we can dial this back in towards... Yeah. And the reason I bring this up about the 1950s is that's when people started chopping people open, finding the, the thickening and the occlusion of the coronary artery. And this is where, I mean, they didn't even know how to measure the stuff we use nowadays, even as badly as we use it nowadays. Um, but what they could figure out is that there's something your liver is doing that brings this fuel supply to your heart it isn't working properly, we're doing something new and different. Uh, what is that? And as they started looking, you know, kind of just around the situation, a lot of people having heart attacks were people who are just better off because they could afford alcohol and cigarettes and crap food and sugar and lots of doctor's appointments or whatever. Um, and those people would have typically, you know, a giant roast every Sunday night and maybe, you know, steak at this other thing and barbecue this. Uh, so they noticed that it's, it's in some places people were just eating more rich food. Mm-hmm. And when you chop up all these people, even if you don't understand the mechanisms and they have all this, you know, cholesterol and, and uh, other tissues stuck in the artery that feeds your heart, they're like, maybe the heart just can't use fat that way, you know, so it's got to be the saturated fat. So there was this guy, Ansel Keys, who's probably still rolling in his grave because everyone 
has to point out that he basically screwed us for 60 years <laughs> by trying to prove that saturated fat causes heart disease and you can eat as much sugar as you want and you can do whatever else you want, but you have to manage your saturated fat and you have to keep your cholesterol down. Now, this is all based on theory uh, and based on what you might call kind of empirical research in the sense that they'll take all of these people and make them fill out questionnaires based on their diet and they'll just take that as basically the clinical evidence for this, this study which is random. You're filling out your health questionnaire because you're part of a study and you're like, oh, how many drinks do I have a week? Two. <laughs> Instead of a day, it's a week, you know. So it's hard to really trust those studies for accuracy. Anyway, so Ansel Keys is doing this big study and he starts doing a meta-analysis of diets and health across as many countries as he can. And he gets all this information and juggles it up, puts it on a graph, and it doesn't do anything. But then he gets this, you know, insight or whatever, and he picks the seven countries on the graph that look like they're going in a certain direction towards death. Uh, and each of them is incrementally known to be eating more saturated fat. So he removed every other country from the study except for the seven that proved that saturated fat and its increase is going to be related to an increase in coronary artery disease and death. Of course, he got all this funding. He became the poster child for you know, what makes sense in medicine and what research you're going to get paid for and what pharmaceutical and uh, companies should be doing their, their work on. So anyway, uh, that's where it all went sideways. And it, it, that all came out in the 50s, like the seven country study, which, which should have been 22 and would have had a completely different outcome. But that changed the way medicine ha has been practiced permanently. And, he, it, it, and it wasn't until 1961 that we could even differentiate through a blood test, LDL and HDL. So they'd already thrown saturated fat onto the fire before they can even measure what it is that you would need to measure to even begin the conversation. So essentially the, um, the research, the study, the whatever it was that uh, Mr. Keyes did was skewed from the beginning. And it was uh, lauded as being this um, excellent information. But it wasn't. Yeah, and almost all of his study research was funded by the vegetable and seed oil industry because now we have these giant machines that can, I mean, make corn oil. I mean, do you have any idea how much corn it takes to make a liter of corn oil? It's, yeah. a, it's a vegetable. It's not an oil plant. It's not like, oh, I'm going to squeeze this avocado. <laughs> it's corn, <laughs> right? So now we have these giant machines with, you know, huge industrial access to substrate like corn or something, and it's so cheap to make and sell it's like well why don't we make this the thing that everyone buys by natural coercion i mean at that point we're you know we're in bed with the devil in the sense of everything that's on commercial tv is what you buy now mm. so it's like a perfect storm of you know social uh thresholds i guess where we just all bought into oh well i guess if saturated fat's bad We'll take the corn oil and the canola oil and the margarine eventually, which is actually one molecule away from plastic, and then go on these low-fat uh, diets and replace all those calories with processed foods. And, you know, boom, here we are with the sickest population in the history of, well, medicine. Yowch. So I, I'm still trying to understand how in the 60s um, things progressed. I mean, if they were working on this premise of sort of uh, limited or flawed, if you will, information, um, how did it progress from there? I mean, the ideas around uh, cholesterol and identifying it, mm -hmm. um, I guess people just kept on carrying the ball of this being the the bad thing. 
evil cholesterol. Yeah. And for some reason, I have this picture. I have seen the show Mad Men once, but I don't have a lot of time for TV. <laughs> but I'm picturing this guy in the 1960s. He's the doctor. He's got his blazer and tie on. He's got a cigarette in one hand and a scotch on the rocks in the other hand, looking across his doctor's office table at his patient, because that probably actually happened. You could sit there with your doctor, even smoking and drinking, saying, well, Billy, you know, the problem is uh, you just got to stop eating all your regular food and you need to take these drugs. Because we got this piece of paper here. I'm just going to rattle the paper for effect. And it says your LDL is high, your HDL is low. Uh, I don't even think they could check for triglycerides at that point. But he could just say, uh, they probably wouldn't, but if I was that guy, I probably would have said, the LDL is bad because it's the one that takes the bad fats and cholesterol directly to your heart. We don't want that LDL guy to take that stuff in his little love canoe to the heart because it's jamming up the vessel that feeds your heart. So we just, if we can stop that from happening, it's all good. And that's as much as we knew. And we've been running on that flawed science up until tomorrow, depending <laughs> on who your doctor is, whether or not they like to read. Tune in tomorrow when Michael talks about <laughs> cholesterol again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's still people in medical practice who are basically, that that's, that's the SOP for them. That's standard operating procedure. If you have high LDL, low HDL, they, that, I mean, the thinking stops there. It's time for you to take a statin, hmm. which effectively stops your liver from producing cholesterol which is insane. And I guess that kind of brings me to the next question. Um, is the history lesson over? We, we, we sort of oh, gotten well, into the 60s. It, it just seemed like a nice way to unravel the conversation, you know, in the sense of temporal process. Sure, and which is great. And I, I, I'm, I'm sort of, as I'm usually doing with you here, anxious to hear. It's like, okay, so if that's where it started, <laughs> let's get into the meat of this thing or the fat of it, if you will. <laughs> and, and, and like... Um, so what is it that cholesterol does? Are we, are we at that place? Can, yeah. we, can we start that? This, this is the perfect place to say, why is that the stupidest thing ever <laughs> in the sense of stopping your liver from producing cholesterol? So cholesterol is uh, something your body makes out of what are called uh, sterols, which are basically a waxy-like tissue somewhere intermediate in formation. It isn't a complete fat structure. It's just sort of on the, it's like a stem cell. It hasn't really decided what it wants to do when it grows up. But if you can take that with something called acetyl-CoA and a few other things in your liver, it can produce cholesterol. Okay. Now, cholesterol, really, really popular kid. It's a part of every tissue in your body. Without it, you can't have cells. You can't have a brain. Uh, you can't have nerves. You can't have eyes. Obviously, everything else doesn't really work either. <laughs> because cholesterol is actually a preformed um, kind of pre-structure for every hormone in your body. It's a pre-structure for vitamin D, your body needs it to make the right kind of bile, you know, so you need to have cholesterol. Would you, would you even go so far as to call it like a foundational thing? It's the most important nutrient in the body. That would be foundational. I think capital, the capital most. <laughs> just keep capitals. <laughs> for the rest of the podcast, it's all capital. Capitals. So just, just, just so we get that again, cholesterol <laughs> is the most important nutrient in the body. Yep. It's a medical fact that you cannot ingest enough cholesterol in one day normally to meet your body's needs for cholesterol. Okay, so my brain is just trying to hear that. Mm -hmm, I know. And it's also arguing against <laughs> that going, but wait a minute, that's not what I've heard. I, I Cholesterol's know. bad. It's so bad. Yeah. Okay, so cholesterol's the most important nutrient. <laughs> Go from there. Okay. I'll have this argument by myself. Yeah, shut yeah, up now. I'll, I'll just watch the twitching and <laughs> randomly put needles wherever you're stuck, you know, for the acupuncture. Anyway, so... If we can sit with the truth that your liver is constantly producing as much cholesterol as it can, 
I mean, it's like 1500 milligrams a day or something like that. Um, cause you have to have that just to live. Mm-hmm. And obviously taking a drug to stop your body from doing that is going to have some ridiculously dangerous side effects, which you can probably get into later. But so happy liver, making a happy festival of cholesterol. Um, and it needs to get put in the right place. Okay. So your body has what are called lipoproteins. Lipoproteins are kind of like somewhere between a canoe and a balloon in the sense that it's a transport device, but it's also like a balloon in the sense you can keep filling it up with fats and triglycerides and cholesterol molecules and stuff like that. And then the balloon or the canoe being a protein uh, can move those fats and cholesterols around the body. Now, the reason why that's necessary is your, your fats, your triglycerides, your cholesterols, they're all uh, fats. So they're not water soluble. So imagine your blood supply being mostly plasma, like as kind of a water centered thing, you throw in some little bubbles of uh, fat. What are they going to do? Float to the top. They're going to end up getting stuck somewhere. <laughs> just, well, I'll walk around with oily hair from now on or something. You know? <laughs> it just keeps popping out of the top of my body. Anyway, <laughs> so that's why we need these lipoproteins to grab onto these, you know, fat soluble things to make them water soluble, identifiable, and uh, they kind of carry little signals with them to tell everybody else around them what they're carrying. Right. So we have LDL in general carries things from your liver towards your heart and your cells for repair and for fuel. LDL. Okay. So LDL is the one that takes things on a long distance. The one that is quote unquote bad. Yeah. And LDL stands for low density lipoprotein. Okay. Right. So LDL takes stuff from your liver to your heart and your brain and your cells to do repair. So depending on how much repair your body needs, and obviously that can have a lot of variables, you're going to have a different amount of LDL just to get stuff where it needs to go. You have an infection, you recently burned yourself. I think in, in any any burn unit in the hospital, you're given, I think, between 8 and 12 egg yolks a day. 8 and 12 egg yolks? Yep. Wow. Because apparently that's the one room in the hospital where they know cholesterol is going to save your life. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All the other doctors, they walk by that room and they just plug their ears and make loud noises and shriek or something because that's the one place in the world where you're allowed to know that cholesterol is essential for health. So obviously a person in a burn unit would be not only given all those eggs to keep them going, but their LDL would be spectacularly high, you would think, to keep trying to repair all of those cells of burned skin. So that's why it's considered to be the bad one, because it's taking the bad stuff to the places where it causes problems, which is about the thinking of a four-year-old. Sorry, that was a little bit bitchy. (laughs) Then you've got HDL, which we call a high-density lipoprotein which is the canoe or the balloon that takes cholesterol and triglycerides and other tissue that hasn't been used up in normal circulation because things take time and it brings it back to your liver to be recycled and maybe transposed back into or put into something like LDL again. And that's still back in the 1960s. So this whole HDL, LDL thing uh, coming and going from the liver um, produced by the liver uh, is performative, healthy, normal, you don't do it, you're going to die kind of thing. If you did not have LDL, you could not get cholesterol anywhere. You'd be dead before you had a chance to complain about anything enough to be diagnosed with something. And so that's the health of it. And the stupidity of it is that modern medicine circa 1960 said, uh, that's bad for you. Yeah. So as we get into the 70s and 80s, we're still running with the bad, good cholesterol thing. But we're beginning to measure the ratio between LDL, HDL, and things like triglycerides. Which are? 
So a triglyceride is basically a glycerin molecule with a whole bunch of pre-fats attached to it. So it's kind of like this thing that's going to turn into a fat cell or be deposited into a fat cell as energy. So it's this intermediate thing between a piece of bread and a, you know, an ounce of fat around your belly button. Okay. So triglycerides are like this rapidly uh, formed and releasable source of energy. And because big muscles like your heart that pump all of the time are the big... Uh, we call slow twitch muscles, they like to burn triglycerides because they're working all day, all the time, right? Uh, and are they a product of the liver as well? Uh, well, your liver actually forms them, but it's basically you get most of your triglycerides from carbohydrate. Okay. You can make a triglyceride out of a protein that just takes a bunch of extra steps. Right. Right. But you don't make triglycerides in the same way out of fat because fat's already by itself a pretty close uh, structure to what a triglyceride can do. So typically it goes the other way triglycerides go towards fats more than the other way. Although it can, it's just your body's designed to just take the triglyceride and store it as fat or burn it as fuel. So when you have really, really high triglycerides and you have an imbalance of cholesterol, basically all that's telling you is you're living in a, in a state of chronic excess. You just keep eating at every meal, which of course most people are like, but that's why we have every meal just to be there and eat food. It's like, yeah, it's good to take breaks too. It's good to give your, your body a chance to level out. So again, with modern life being, you know, now probably in the 80s and 90s where we're in a completely different uh, anthropological, you know, sort of freak show uh, of what people, you know, go and do as food, as supplements. I mean, at that point, it's about 136 pounds of sugar per year per person. This is in the U.S., of course. Um, drug use is going way, way up in the sense of pharmaceuticals. You know, fast food is now a completely different thing than it would have been in the 60s because they don't actually make fast food in fast food restaurants anymore. It's all pre-made and in a way that makes it even more dangerous for human consumption. And I think as we, you know, can predict on that, you know, it's still we're floating around about where we were at in the 90s. Uh, obviously, within the next 20 years, it just got worse in terms of sugar and processed foods and uh, pharmaceutical use. Uh but I mean, I'm just guessing, I guess I'm just saying that in the, to help frame the trajectory of where things are at, because it's around the 90s, uh, turn of the millennia, that uh, the whole medical science and, and direction of cholesterol management started to get really, really sort of screwed up because nothing was working. So before you go too far with that, 60s, 70s, 80s, um, there were drugs that uh, were actually introduced to actually um, deal with this sort of thing? Yeah, and that's when statins really became kind of the the poster child of the big billion-dollar side of the pharmaceutical industry because, I mean, you give people this drug, they get sicker, but you can manage almost everything that goes wrong uh, until they get Alzheimer's or something like that. Um but at least you're controlling these bad numbers. I mean, you can take the piece of paper from the lab and say, look, we made that number better. Sorry that you can't think anymore, you know, but look at the numbers. Well, you don't care. You forgot what we're talking about. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, there's that astronaut uh, medical doctor guy, I forgot his name. He wrote a book called uh, uh, Statins, The Thief of Memory, hmm. you know, and because he was uh, getting ready to go on some space doctor thing and uh, his blood cholesterol was a bit high so they gave him this drug and you know he literally forgot everything wow for like 12 hours and just wow lights out lights back on again and he's a medical doctor right so he's just like ah uh so my 
brain is ping-ponging with questions here. Yeah, give me a second to get one of them out. <laughs> so a statin drug is uh, is what then? What exactly does it do? It stops the acetyl-CoA from being able to form cholesterol. Can you say that in English? <laughs> it stops a little ninja in your liver that takes cholesterol and taps it on the head and turns it, or takes a sterol and turns it into cholesterol. So it stops your body from producing the, what you already said, the health yeah. function of producing cholesterol. It just, yeah, you can't make enough of it anymore. So if that's what it does, um, does it do anything else? Like, does it, like, is it harmful? Uh, I mean, uh, it's in, actually been shown to be a mild anti-inflammatory for the liver, hmm. which gives it that little butt-shaking sense of, see, I'm not all bad. <laughs> right. Um, and so uh, I guess just by default, what you just said was um, cholesterol, fat, calling somebody a fathead is actually a good thing, not a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, it's fat between our ears that makes us think, keep memories, and all that sort of stuff. Pretty much. Huh. That's another podcast. <laughs> I only did four of them on the brain a while ago, just in case you forgot. Yeah, we talked a lot about the fats in the brain. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, here we are. It's like in the 90s, turn of the century. We're realizing that for 50 years, we've been swinging a bat at uh, heart disease, and it's getting worse and worse and worse every year uh, in terms of statistics. But we're still running with LDL, HDL, you know, and all this sort of stuff. So... Uh, the funding for doing deeper research starts to come back into vogue, I guess, because people are saying, you know, we're really not doing a good job at this at all. We're killing people all over the place. Mm -hmm. uh, so they got deeper into the research. And this is where uh, the really big kind of aha moment happened, which is we started to measure the actual structure of what's in arterial plaques. Right. Not, not only the fact that it contained cholesterol, but more importantly, it contained what's called a foam cell, which is something your body does with oxidized cholesterol. So, sorry, foam, F-O-A-M? F-O-A-M, like, you know, if you put a latte with or without foam. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Uh, anyway, so when you have cholesterol, if it gets oxidized by the way you cook your food, meaningful silence in the sense that, oh yeah, almost every way we cook our food is going to destroy the cholesterol in it. Um, in the sense of barbecuing or you fry your egg to the point where the yolk is solid or you scramble your eggs or when you buy packaged food, uh, especially those cake mixes and stuff, uh, the cholesterol in there is profoundly oxidized. So any egg yolk, any other kind of, you know, fat, it's been sitting in this package rotting away or oxidizing or rusting. So once you have cholesterol in your system, that is uh, being released in, in, at some site from, say, LDL. Um, the cholesterol that comes out is oxidized because you got it in a, I don't know, pizza pocket or something. <laughs> and uh, the immune system says, you, that, that's not supposed to be here. We don't want that guy. We want the flexible, fluffy, happy cholesterol that you know, loves us all and keeps us alive. So our immune system attacks the oxidized cholesterol we're going to get into what's called a foam cell, which becomes a rigid plaque, hmm. right? And it it's like that, it's, it's a spray foam that you use in construction. Yeah. It comes out of the, the, <laughs> the can, it's like this <laughs> weird expanding foam, and then it turns into a solid. Yeah, that, that's exactly where they got the idea, I'm sure. <laughs> anyway, and but there's also uh, the, the complete other side to what's really going on, which we'll have to get to shortly. But um, what is important is to realize we started to actually study the the occlusion itself, the actual structure and function of those plaques to the point where that reverse engineered one of the problems, which is maybe it isn't just cholesterol, maybe it's oxidized cholesterol. 
And maybe that's a normal reaction to that kind of cholesterol. And as you track it back to the 50s and the clinking glasses and the cigarettes and everything else, it's obvious that our lifestyle became so much more uh, corrosive in the sense of oxidative stress, inflammation, that even if you're having just a really healthy diet, it's likely that your metabolism being kind of all acidic and inflamed would oxidize a lot of your cholesterol anyway. So now your body's trying to bring healthy cholesterol to where it needs it the most, if it's to fuel heart function or repair membranes, uh, things like that. Um, of course, wherever it piles up, you're going to see the most plaquing. Because again, LDL is meant to bring fluffy, usable triglycerides and fats uh, and cholesterol to the muscles of your heart for all the things that it needs. Mm -hmm. So, of course, we're going to see this rapid increase in the destructive foam cell hard placking of the coronary artery, which is, again, over 80% of the actual incidents that cause heart attacks. Okay. And I'm going to throw this in there just because I want to make sure I don't forget to say this. Uh, over 50% of people who have a classic heart attack, they don't have any placking at all. So can you see the question on my face? Yeah. Huh? <laughs> we all do that slack. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> right. So I just wanted to make sure that although we're talking about kind of the mechanisms of cholesterol and how it all works, uh, we're all colloquially or culturally kind of conditioned to just think about, well, what's going to stop the heart attack? What's going to stop the heart attack? And if half heart attacks that happen have nothing to do with placking, I just want you to be aware that it, you don't need placking to get heart attacks. Mm. Right. It's, it's just one of the things that we see. Right, and it might be kind of the um, uh, the excess or the uh, the extreme uh, case. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, the most. Well, I'll get you to guess. What do you think the most common day uh, people have heart attacks is? Uh, Monday. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Damn, I didn't know you know that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, Monday morning, beginning of the week, you just turn on turn on your computer or whatever, and you're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty boot up your computer and have a jammer. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so just to get a little bit more into it, now, now that we are aware that there's a much more specific process going on in the formation of arteriosclerotic placking, then the research really started to get interesting because people started to figure out that uh, there's multiple kinds of uh, lipoproteins, right? We've got LDL, HDL, uh, but it turns out there's a bunch of other ones. So now we have LDL-A, and LDLB. And again, people still think that one's bad, one's good. But what's interesting is LDLA uh, is a larger, kind of fluffier and um, easier to use substance. Um, so that's actually a good cholesterol. Okay. Because it brings lots of yummy things and gets it where it's going. When you look at LDLB, um, it's a much smaller, much more difficult and more reactive molecule. And it's the one that's actually the most likely to get stuck into the actual endothelium or the, the skin of the vessels of your, your, your blood system or your vascular system. We'll get into them really quick. But I just want people to be aware that when you think about going to a doctor that's going to say, well, your LDL is high, you, you should probably be asking them pattern A or pattern B. Because hmm. pattern A, LDL, is actually good for you. Pattern B being really high, now that's actually bad for you. And that's probably where most, uh, I, I, this is a guess, a hypothesis, that's where most medicine is stuck. Mm -hmm. that it, I mean, you have to pay the, the big bucks for the doctors who are up to speed on this stuff to get that level of care. You actually have to ask them, I, I need to know my pattern A, pattern B, 
and they'll go, oh, that's going to be another 200 bucks for the lab test because you actually want us to do a real lab test, not just the thing that we've been doing since the 60s. Hmm. Uh, before I move on, I think it's worth saying that if you actually have chronically low LDL, which means you're getting very low saturated fats to the rest of your body and brain, you're very likely to experience uh, intermittent rage disorder, depression, potential suicide, uh, clumsiness and accidents, uh, cerebral uh, aneurysms or brain bleeds. Uh, did I mention suicide? I think there was a, mm -hmm. yeah, Alzheimer's, bad. So obviously you need what LDL is bringing to the brain to work, right? It's interesting when you say that. It makes me think that it's um, it affects us emotionally. Absolutely. You can't have thoughts and feelings without brain. <laughs> you know, so... I mean, you know, the reason why I say that, we're talking about the mechanics of the heart and all that sort of stuff and blood and all these things. And yeah, that was just an aha moment for me. Okay, carry on. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, if uh, we're, we're suppressing the manufacturing of cholesterol, we're trying to keep LDL low, um, that's not a good standard of care because chronically low LDL can actually turn you into a mental patient. Hmm right? And a bunch of other things. Uh, so when you look at HDL, supposedly good cholesterol, HDL we call two, um, just a second, I have to make sure I got this just right at my head. Yeah. So HDL two is actually another large, soft, uh, fluffy, easy to use molecule. It's actually anti-inflammatory and, uh, it's another one you want to have a lot of because as long as you have good high LDL bringing stuff, out to this periphery of the system and you have good HDL cleaning up the leftovers really effectively, both of those numbers are, are good for you. Hmm. Uh, it's actually, the, the research is really interesting on HDL too because it's so good for people, but it's also used up in inflammation. So a lot of people who go to their doctor and they look at the ratios between all these different lipo or um, lipoproteins, um, you know, if they have, say, rheumatic arthritis, they could have predictably lower HDL2 because your body's using that as an anti-inflammatory. So then you look at your cholesterol markers and the, you know, LDL's high, it's bad, HDL's low, it's good, oh my God, you know, we've got to fix this. And no one's dealing with the fact that it's the inflammation that's causing everything else that's going wrong. Wow. Right. So just, just a little geek out aside there. So we've got HDL2, good. HDL3, supposedly good because it's got an H in there, but it's another small, tight, potentially inflammatory molecule by itself, and it can cause all kinds of problems. So basically we have to scrap our testing system and rewrite it and maybe change the whole idea of good and bad cholesterol to, oh yeah, we're allowed to say lipoprotein, we're allowed to know more than two things about anything, and uh, move ahead with a much more clear sense of blood lipids, their importance, and how to manage what actually goes wrong. So there's also um, what's called VLDL or very large uh, or very low density uh, lipoproteins. There's something called LPA, which is lipoprotein A. Uh, its job is to actually repair the structure of your vascular system. But if it's around too long and too high, uh, it can also cause inflammatory problems and it can turn, I think, into L, uh, it feeds into HDL2 or 3, sorry, 3 is the bad one. So it's just like all these different things. And for the listener, I mean, try try not to worry about whether or not you have all this mapped out in your head. There's even more, you know, details inside that system. I just want everyone to be aware that if you're having any issues around cardiovascular health and you want to get some help, you're going to need to educate your doctor or find an educated doctor who can actually figure out the ratio of all of those different lipoproteins um, just at the beginning of the conversation. And more importantly, 
if there was a drum roll button, I'd be drum rolling buttoning. But more importantly, there's lab tests for things like chronic inflammation and or chronic high insulin and other things that are much, much, much more predictable uh, concerns around an actual uh, cardiovascular event or incident. There's other diagnostic tools you're saying that are like better? Yeah. So right now, like say in the functional medicine world, which is where I speak to when it comes from the microscope side of health and science, um, you know, I would want to check again your pattern A, pattern B of LDL to make sure that your A is higher than B. You want to make sure your HDL2 is higher than 3. You want to make sure your LPA is at a reasonable level. And then you're going to want to make sure that what we would call CRP or C-reactive protein is really, really low because it's the one that basically goes up as chronic inflammation goes up as well as chronic stress. Uh, there's a test called hemoglobin A1C, which tests basically how irritated your hemoglobin is by chronically high insulin load because of high glucose. Mm. Right. So, I mean, when we start taking, taking those monitor, monitoring those levels more, as well as your triglycerides, all of a sudden we have a completely different sense of the entire, well, almost the entire mechanics of the entire system from the inside of your vascular system in the sense of the fluid to the components and wire that are there, the ratio of them, and more importantly, the health of the actual structure. Because what most people are moving towards now in this part of healthcare, they're calling it um, uh, ASCD, uh, arteriosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Because now we've realized it's what's called endothelial dysfunction that's actually the root of the whole problem. Because mm -hmm. if you're the actual structure of the tube, if you will, or the pipe of your blood vessels starts to degrade in just the right number of ways, then little particles like LDL, uh, LDL pattern B, the little bad guys, uh, they can squeeze into the space between the cells of the endothelium, uh, which is the frontline barrier of your blood, uh, blood vessels. And once it gets stuck in there, uh, that creates like a wound site. It's itchy, it's irritating, you know, I have no bamboo under your finger nail or something for imagery now. <laughs> uh, plus, you know, uh, because it's a wound site, your body's going to bring the LPA there to repair it. And because it's stuck, the repair thing just gets thicker and thicker. So now you're getting thickening of the endothelium, which is bad. And then you're getting all that cholesterol there to try and repair it because you need cholesterol for everything, just in case you missed that. But if your cholesterol is oxidized because of systemic inflammation, oxidation, or you're eating thing out of boxes still, uh, you're going to get those foam cells creating more patches and, and uh, placking around the thickened artery because a little pebble got stuck in the shoe of the endothelium. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so so now, now, now we're trying to like, like get testing where you're like, well, you, you know, we need to look at the whole system of this to even appreciate uh, the beginning of the conversation as to what's going to make the difference in this person's health. Because you could have five people with the same blood pressure and the same blood markers and have five completely different reasons why they're stuck where they're stuck. Mm. Well, it, it, we, you know, I mean, that's the past five minutes of you describing all of that leaves me sort of spinning and thinking, if modern medicine is stuck on the wrong ideas around cholesterol, um, who do you ask to get this kind of, um, I mean, I can't imagine everyone on the podcast is going to phone you, but if somebody in their hometown uh, needs some kind of support around this sort of stuff, who do they look for to get this kind of insight into uh, cardiovascular health? 
I mean, luckily you've got Dr. Google and you can type in, you know, I'd start with a functional medicine doctor, you know, and then that's usually an MD or a naturopath or someone that does Chinese medicine or uh, osteopathic medicine, chiropractors, uh, but I didn't leave anybody out. <laughs> uh, but just people who've decided to take their, their previous medical training and to stay uh, apprised of the modern research, because that's basically functional medicine is, okay, science is cool, but the old model of making symptoms go away clearly isn't improving our health. So let's start tearing that down. And, you know, with all the functional medicine people, we're all just basically nerds who want to research exactly why. Hmm. Not only for everybody, but for each person. Okay. That makes me feel a little better. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's not hard to do that. I think what I think we want to consider doing as a population is to begin interviewing our doctors. It might drive them crazy for the next two years, but to go in there and say, hi, I'm so-and-so, and, you know, I just want to spend five minutes just asking you about, you know, how often you update your continuing education, if you're aware of, uh, you know, different therapeutic diets, if you've done, you know, I'm here because of my heart disease, so I just want to see, you know, how often do you prescribe statins? Do you have any kind of specific rules about who should or shouldn't get that drug? Because anyone who actually really knows what they're doing would only prescribe that drug to, like, 2% of their patients, and it would be only because there's really no other hope for that particular person, and they're already very sick. Not just to kick statins or whatever, but uh, that's, I mean, but that's the questions I'd be asking someone if I had heart disease. I'd be like, so are you going with SOP, give people neurotoxic drug and see you later? Or are you a thinking clinician who's still trying to figure stuff out? I think we should be allowed to ask our doctors that. I mean, it's almost like, you know, I hope I don't step on, well, I'm going to step on toes with this, but I apologize. Um, you go to someone about a religious situation, they're the expert. Shut up and just do what they say. You go to a person who's got a medical degree, it's almost like a religion. Shut up. I'm the expert. Do what I say. You know, and then see, even that, it's that bad with our political system. You know, people get in power and they're like, oh, I guess I'm in charge. Shut up and do what I say. And instead of going, oh, yeah, I'm your administrator. What would you like me to do, boss? <laughs> mm. Right. And it's, I mean, we hire doctors to help us. We, you know, we hire politicians to organize things like schools and hospitals. I think as people in this culture, again, since the 1950s, we've just been kind of coerced and educated to sit down, shut up, watch the show and listen to the expert and buy what's on the shelf, especially if it's on special. And, and it's gluten-free. <laughs> <laughs> or, or whatever's popular right now. Yeah, well, so, it, it sounds like you're giving people um, permission or inviting them to look at... Um, being a little bit more proactive in their health uh, journey. Seems like the only way to go. Yeah. So one other thing, and it, I guess I'm, this is coming up in my mind because last time we did the podcast on cancer, one thing I didn't talk about uh, as much as I wanted to is the effect that uh, radiation has on the inside of your vascular system, which upregulates the production of what's called fibrin, which produces the most pernicious part of the initial stages of cancer. So the reason why that, popped into my mind is one other thing that's becoming a modern at first seemingly a good idea is a mini CT scan that they can do just of your coronary artery. They and can get that focus so they can, can actually they, look at one yeah, small. We're getting close to the Star Trek widget that where you and then you just look at it and it tells you stuff. And I mean when I first heard of that I was pretty excited. I'm just thinking wow I mean now we, we can just look and see are you one of those people that's the 50% who actually do have placking and is the placking putting you in that 80% population who will get a heart attack because your coronary artery is measurably occluded or stuck or jammed up or whatever 
So the problem with that is when you zap somebody with 50 x-rays, which is your average CT scan, the amount of oxidative reactive stress that happens inside your entire vascular system to deal with the fact you just got mildly cooked from the inside, FYI, if you're wondering what x-rays do. Uh, so the free radical activity or the oxidative stress to the entire vascular system goes up for, I think it's about three weeks. Wow. So <clears throat> I think, you know, if you're going to get on any kind of x-ray for any reason at all, uh, if you're going to get a CT scan for any reason at all, especially on, on directly on your heart, for the next three or four weeks, no one's allowed to take your blood. Because Except leeches. Leeches would be good because they could eat all that, you know, radioactive blood. <laughs> uh, because all your markers are going to be the worst they can be. So whatever readings they would get uh, from taking blood at that point would be For the next three weeks, off the hook. you're going to have the worst LDL uh, ratios because of the amount of oxidative stress and oxidized cholesterol and damaged triglycerides and the fact that your endothelium is now basically, uh, I don't know, it's the word. It's like a stocking with a run in it, hmm. you know. So now the probability of LDL small particle packages to get stuck in the endothelium goes up for the next three weeks, and then the necessary attempts to repair the damage is going to go up, and then the placking in the foam cells is going to happen because you've obviously got more oxidized cholesterol because you're walking around with uh, free radicals in your system because you just got zapped with, you know, 50 x-rays. Wow. That's kind of um, a snowball cascade of doom. Yeah, but it started off with a really good idea, which is, you know, wow, if we could take pictures just of just the coronary artery, we could rule out so much more quickly. I mean, it'd be like going to the airport and you walk through the thing and you get an extra, you put five bucks in the machine and it'll actually give you the, a CAT scan of your heart or your brain or whatever else. Because wouldn't that be neat to know? The problem with that technology is that it's frying people and it produces way, way more cancers. Uh, and this is, I mean, if we were putting the previous episode on cancer, I probably could have done 20 minutes on just how badly the use of imaging and the lack of respect for what it does to the body uh, in the sense of actual testing for people. Because every time you zap someone, you're giving them more cancer. Hmm. Right? So every time you zap someone, you're giving them more thickened arteries for weeks. Wow. And I mean, that's, that's, if you need an x-ray, you need an x-ray, you need a CAT scan, okay. But I think the doctor should refer you to the post-radiation people. You know, I think, I mean, we had that conversation a while ago about uh, surviving modern medicine. If you have to go to a clinician and get a prescription, I think you should be, in a, in a thinking society, asked to go and see the person who's trained to get you off that drug if it's possible. If you go and have to have an uh, imaging procedure, you should have to humbly shuffle down the hall to the person who can sit there and put you on a diet for the next three weeks or something that's going to rapidly clear all of that stress out of your system. And, you know, have a little, little sign or something like that around your neck that says, no lab testing or imaging for the next few weeks because I'm on fire. <laughs> so the numbers might be wrong. <laughs> hmm. I don't know if you've seen this stuff on uh, social media, but I don't know. I used to be an engineer, so I... I love technical widgets, but I keep seeing these uh, little roto-rooters that they're inventing to go into people's arteries and magically deploy these little spinning, gougy wheels of uh, arteriosclerotic plaque. You know, they just grind them up into a little powder and suck them out into the wherever evil place that's supposed to go. And so it's really fun to watch those machines, but at the same time, there's a part of me going like, 
Yeah, I love science fiction, but maybe we should fix the reason why all those plaques keep growing in people. I call me stubborn, but <laughs> might be a good idea to sort of look at the root cause of something. Yeah, so if we're going to get into the root cause directly, it's called endothelial dysfunction. It's everything that can go wrong inside the tissue of your blood and inside the tissue that makes up the tissue of your blood in the sense of plasma and all that stuff that actually changes that environment, which is huge. I think we said this on a few podcasts ago, but if you stretch out your blood vessels, depending on who you talk to, they're supposed to go end to end around the equator of this planet between two times and eight times. I've, I've seen some people say two, A, but I don't have the time to stretch out all of mine to figure it out, but <laughs> it's, 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 it's out there. So I mean, you have this massive surface area and it wraps around planets. And if the, the serum of that tissue changes in any number of ways, the package itself, the endothelium, is going to be under a kind of chemical stress and it's going to change. And almost always it's going to become more porous. So number one, high glucose, high, high insulin. Now, nothing is worse than constantly high sh blood sugar. So hang on a sec. You're talking about things that are actually going to um, ruin the integrity of your... Yep. Just, just, just in, yeah, just in case I didn't segue into this very clearly, I'm now going to explain what causes endothelial dysfunction. <laughs> sort of, you know, the, 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 the top players. Sure. And if they can cause your blood vessels to become porous and weak, then you're going to see all of those mechanical changes that are known to cause the placking and everything else. Okay. But I just think if, if we can reduce the things that make it possible, then it becomes less possible and it's not going to happen to you. Mm-hmm. It's, I don't know. My favorite thing to do is reverse engineer problems. So. so again, high insulin, high blood sugar, many, many reasons why that's bad for you. Um, there's a thing that sugar does called glycation, where it basically cooks proteins and fats into a way that makes them super, super dangerous, right? So you don't want to have that happen uh, because that becomes another participant in the whole process for any other reason why your endothelium is breaking down. Second one is just stress hormones. You know, stress is great for about 20 minutes. After two hours, it's going to hurt you. And after a couple of days, it's making you sick. Hmm. Right. So if you're constantly under a state of stress, a lot of the what are called cytokines, uh, leukocytes and stuff, which are immune system tattletales or emails that tell the rest of the body what to do, uh, that can actually signal the endothelium to loosen up. Because certain immune system cells, I forgot the technical name for it, but their job is to move to a capillary and then whisper a secret song into the blood vessels. And then the blood vessel specifically at that location becomes porous. And all of the other immune system army guys can run to that site, hop through the blood vessel and fight the infection in your elbow or your knee or your toe. Cool. Right. But unfortunately, if you have those immune system cells that are saying, open the doors of the blood vessels, let the army guys through, and you have uh, these low density particles, high density particles that can get stuck in there, that's one of the reasons why they get stuck is mm -hmm. your immune system just keeps telling your blood vessels, I think the infection's over there. And then they loosen up and things get jammed up and off we go. Uh, oxidation, oxidation, as I mentioned, huge thing. I mean, that's free radicals. It's toxic environments. It's the wrong food. It's cigarette smoking. It's everything else that's bad. Um, having inflammation in your body because of chronic stress, chronic infection, uh, you know, disease process and stuff like that. Uh, just by itself, as we mentioned, is in, the, in the, the top two or three things to test for because it's the highest indicator for the fact that anything going on in your blood supply is going to be more sticky or uh, jammed up or likely to plaque because it's been oxidized by inflammation. 
Uh, there's something called LPS, lipopolysaccharide. Uh, we've probably brought that up about 10 times in the past. It's what we would call bug poo. If your gut's off and you have dysbiosis and your bugs are uh, feeding and fasting and breeding and dying and all that stuff, all the dead bugs and bug poo creates what's called LPS, a very, very corrosive molecule that it's, I guess, um, uh, the thing that makes it popular is it's really good at going through membranes from your gut membrane, through your blood vessels, through your blood brain barrier. So if you've got a lot of LPS, it's bad. So keep your bugs happy and they won't be bug poop making you get heart disease. <laughs> uh, it's all connected. Oh my God. Uh, some people have a lot of homocysteine because they don't clear it very well because they weigh way too much red meat. Uh, any a number of uh, other reasons. Uh, that's a marker that I would suggest anyone who's really trying to work out the details of cardiovascular disease. Consider that one as sort of your, your next group of tests to get. Because if you're having a hard time clearing it or your diet's too too high for you to, to metabolize all of it, uh, it can be an inflammatory marker for your gut. Uh, any kind of autoimmune process, you know, because that just changes the how chronic and intense every aspect of the cytokine, so leukocytes, the inflammation, and oxidation goes. And that just basically it's just gas on the fire of everything else that happens. So I mean, those are the things that typically cause endothelial dysfunction. If you eat a lot of processed foods, it's going to jam up your arteries. Your immune system is going to do its best to deal with that insult, you know, to the best of its ability. And unfortunately, at a certain point, if you really do get into the arteriosclerotic vascular cardiovascular disease process, you, I mean, you honestly have to undo the entire thing. It takes months to years, but I would say anyone who's serious, who does have, you know, clinically, uh, high markers that actually mean this could be bad for you, you know, within six months to two years, you should be completely fine. Hmm. And is it possible for, um, is it possible to actually, uh, unimprove? Like how, what's the question I'm asking here? If all of a sudden somebody starts eating that way, how soon would you get results, uh, bad results? So if you ate things that made forced bug poo and you ate, Processed foods. Oh, that's, and, yeah, like I mean, is, is it easy to sort of bring this on? Does it happen quickly, or does it happen over time? Well, I, th I think you know. I, I'm thinking of that movie Super Size Me, and then that one that uh, we sponsored a while ago. Oh, that that sugar film. That, that sugar film, which was sponsored by Fusion Health Radio. Yeah, because we're cool guys. <laughs> um, anyway, um, two months. I would say within two months you're going to probably be sick, and within six you you you'll have basically changed so much of how you look that most people you know are going to be like what's wrong man you got really puffy like everything is just puffy and swollen and mm -hmm. you know pal like that kind of sallow you know look and i mean you can kind of read based on a person's skin if you really pay attention and you've figured it out you, you can basically see the ratio of ldl hdl in the sense of large particle small particle not good and bad just based on the the tonus of the membrane of their skin Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I'm getting all self-conscious. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I don't know why I never get invited to parties. I just think I stare at everyone diagnosing them or something. <laughs> Go to the airport, would you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at least you're allowed to stare at people there. Um, where are we at with this whole conversation? I mean, certainly knowing that um, the idea of uh, cholesterol and how uh, uh, Western medicine looks at it is kind of skewed wrong. Um, and understanding the whole process. I think I used the word inept, but... Yeah, okay. Uh, understanding the whole process, uh, what it is in the body, um, all the different things we can do. We talked about 
um, who could probably understand everything that you said because I know I'm going to have to listen to this again in order for it to sink in. <laughs> um, just because they're, they're big words and it's kind of like rethinking. You know, this is like rethinking cholesterol. We did yep. rethinking cancer. This is rethinking cholesterol. Uh, where are we at with the podcast now? Well, I think if we can say, uh, well, like you just wrapped it all up in that sense, you know, that that's what we should all be aware of. I think we should all be aware of the things that can make this get worse so that for ourselves and people in our family that may be at higher risk, we can be more uh, proactive, I guess. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're going over to grandma's house to make her a pot of food, you might want to make the good food instead of the stuff that might kill her, you know. Right. Yeah, no TV dinners for grandma. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a great name for a band. Anyway, so the, the don'ts we kind of went through already. So the do's are pretty common sense, especially to our tribe of fusion health people who are aware that, you know, health is a fusion of different influences. You can't just take vitamin C or something like that. <clears throat> So obviously getting your hydration water figured out, that's, that's a big thing. And, you know, we're kind of known for our, you know, two liters a day, first liter in the two hour, first two hours of your day kind of thing. That was the first podcast we did. Yep. <clears throat> and, so long uh, ago. Yeah. I think that's the, of all the YouTube videos I've done, that's the one that's had the most people watch it. How much water should I drink a day? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's got mostly to the jokes about, you know, apple juice, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so enough water is good. Obviously sleep is important for everything, but. Uh, when it comes to the repair uh, and the rate at which blood vessels like to thicken and grow, uh, and this is, would have to be another podcast because it's super techie stuff, but uh, the less you sleep, the more your cardiovascular system is going to get sick more rapidly. Mm -hmm. So if you went to Mexico for a bender with your friends or whatever, if you're not sleeping very well, yeah, that, that would just be worse for you. <laughs> Uh, obviously keeping yourself physically fit is important. Uh, we did a whole podcast on your muscles and how they actually function as an organ. If you're not familiar with that, then check out that podcast. Your muscles are amazing. That's the one. Yeah. Uh, regular fasting, I think is a really important idea. I think it's interesting that the number of affluent middle-aged people that I see when they come in and they've got their list of long things and I've got my rep of being a bit of a, I don't know, thorough person. Uh, surprises me how many times I can sit down with these people and say, well, the first thing you need to do is stop eating for three days. And of course, these are the people who, because of affluence and, you know, habit and stuff like that, live, you know, almost at a sense of pride with being able to reach for whatever they want and just take it. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's, I don't know. I've got this version of Brad Pitt in my head. It's a movie, the world is yours, go and take it. <laughs> you know, so there's this thing that people that's sort of a heroic thing in our, our minds in our society. It's if I'm in, I'm in power, I can just do what I want. So these people come in and they're affluent and they've got their list of illness things to deal with. And my go-to thing is, well, I just want to stop eating for a few days. And they just stare at me like I'm an insane person. You know, the analogy that comes up to mind around that is, um, years ago in another life, uh, I worked as a banquet waiter. I remember. And uh, as a banquet waiter, we would have uh, dinners for a thousand people. So picture a hundred round tables in a room and um, you would have dinner the one night and then you would have breakfast for them the next morning. And in order to clean the room, uh, essentially we'd clear all the tabletops and uh, go around looking for, you know, sugar packs or bigger things on the floor and go around with a hokey, a little small dust broom kind of thing. Hmm. And clean up all the stuff that's sort of visible in between the tables and chairs. 
but all the junk that actually hit the floor under the table uh-huh. stayed there until oh. lunch the next day or dinner the next day or whenever um, the tables needed to be moved out of the room. And there'd be sometimes when the tables would be in place for a week at a time. And then when you finally do move the tables out, you see all of this horrible stuff growing <laughs> underneath the tables. Now, I'm not going to mention the hotel, but just know that any hotel that you're actually in, the next time you go for a fancy dinner, look under the table. And then you'll think to yourself, that's what fast, that's what fasting does. Fasting right. allows you to clear out all the tables. That was awesome. And clear out all the crap. No, that was a great whatever it is when you just take something and turn it right back around again and give people the little bouquet of you're never gonna forget that. <laughs> awesome, Anthony, way to go, because I'm never gonna forget that either. So fasting, it's really good for your table. <laughs> it's really good for your hotel. <laughs> your neurotic dinner. cousin who comes over to look at your hygiene. Yeah, exactly. So besides, you know, sleep, exercise, fasting, um, oh, staying fit and stuff like that. Uh, specifically improving and increasing your uh, liver function is obviously going to be good. You can do that directly with things like coenzyme Q10 because it's a participant in the process of actually making more cholesterol. So I, I, I don't know, there's this teenager inside of me with his middle finger sticking up at everyone going, ah, just the sense of making more cholesterol to fix the problem with your cholesterol because it's funny. <laughs> Uh, lots of vitamin C. Vitamin E is also known to be very protective of the endothelium, especially around inflammation. Uh, resveratrol, uh, alpha-lipoic acid, those good anti-inflammatories, different way, but obviously still good. Uh, there's a recipe on my website for something called golden milk you can make. Uh, soon it'll be for sale. Um, Before you go to Fufar, the website. Oh, integrativehealthsolutions.ca. Go on. Which I'll try and remember to put in the show notes. Uh, you can use glutathione as an acetyl, uh, an acetylcysteine, or you can do the famous coffee enema to up your glutathione, uh, as transferase system in your liver to just clear all that stuff out and make sure your, you know, liver can keep your blood vessels happy and clean and shiny. Uh, when it comes to diet, keeping your carbohydrates as, you know, middle to low on the GI index or glycemic index best for you because lower GI, lower release into the blood as sugar, lower insulin. Ta-da. It's all good. All good. There's a Chinese herb called Tian Qi or San Qi. Uh, it's been clinically tested and proven to help actually clean up arteriosclerotic placking once your liver and vascular system are healthy enough to actually reverse the process, which just in case we haven't said that enough times, oh yeah, this is completely reversible. FYI. And uh, I don't think you need machines to do it, but, you know, still want to see those things work because they're so cool. Uh, there's something called serapeptase. Um, it's actually from a Chinese herb. Uh, it's now being just uh, commercially made, I think, with some kind of bacteria. But uh, it has an amazing thing at declumping um, things like immune system complexes or uh, red blood uh, cells that are stuck together because of inflammation or other problems in the body. So I would say that's, personally, that's one of my go-to things. If anything has started to feel congested or inflamed or not quite right, I just bring up the serapeptides because, I don't know, I just like the Chinese herb it comes from. So uh, There's cayenne. Uh, it's about more for men in midlife, but still good for women. Uh, you can put it in capsules. It comes in all kinds of just over-the-counter midlife, you know, blood tonic health things. Uh, I would, I mean, there's some herbs that are really more specific to cardiotonics and, and other things that I think a clinician should, should make those decisions. In fact, it, although I'm mentioning all these things, I sh- should be saying it in some disclaimer. 
in no way is any podcast going to replace the actual care of a real physician who's got their hot little hands on your, you know, chart. Chart. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, but other things that I would suggest looking into or talking to your healthcare professional about, uh, <laughs> besides everything I've already said, uh, kimchi is considered to be, I think, in the top three things known by science to again remove. Uh, the placking once your body's healthy enough to do so. And for the sake of those folks who are scratching their head right now, kimchi is? Oh, kimchi is like uh, Korean sauerkraut. It's so good. It's a fermented food. Fermented food. The yeah. recipe is on my website. It took me two years to get that exactly right, but I think it's the best kimchi in the world. There you go. There you go. Uh, meditation. don't know if I say that enough times on the show, and I think we should move our show in that direction just for the fun of it, but... Uh, vitamin M, more meditation is going to help everything about everything. Uh, and believe it or not, acupuncture is also very good at shifting some real deep baseline processes in the body that can help reduce blood pressure and, uh, more rapidly allow the immune system to clean up the mess. I think, uh, people just start to need, they need to go back to episode one <laughs> and listen all the way through. Oh, good. There's there, there's threads of everything that you're saying here now in terms yeah. of uh, health protocol around cardiovascular health that are woven into all of the other podcasts that we've done, which is kind of the way health works. Yeah, well, it's all common sense, really. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's it's common sense, but it's all connected, right? And I think that's one thing that um, I know for myself once I started looking at health being a the total picture of health, not necessarily one little small doctor, doctor, it hurts when I do this, then don't do that. You know, like it's, it's not that kind of, um, separate little thing. It's actually connected. So yeah, it all is. Yeah, sure. Um, I think that's a lot of information mm -hmm. around cholesterol. Uh, is there anything else that you needed to say? Uh, like well, one thing I guess just popped into my mind cause I mentioned meditation is, uh, um, assuming that people listening to this uh, might be interested in other offerings that are out there. Um, I don't have the dates figured out for this, but I'm going to be doing a 10-week webinar uh, platform-based uh, program. It's going to be called Applied Meditation 10 Weeks to Higher Consciousness, and it's just going to be an exploration of, uh, well, what we would call applied meditation practices, which are somewhat different than just sitting there and breathing, uh, although you kind of have to start with that one. Mm -hmm. Uh but the idea is to give people a lot of different tools that you can bring into practice in a lot of different environments and opportunities in your life that can allow you to basically take control of the direction of your thoughts and feelings, your posture, uh, your mindset. And just because in my experience as a person, as well as a clinician, the thing that's the hardest to do and the most important to do is to change the way you remember yourself. Okay. So if I remember myself with a certain amount of negativity, a certain amount of comparison or expectation, and I don't do anything about that, you know, overt fatherly Western kind of power tripping voice, then uh, that sucks to be me. Mm -hmm. But the only way I can change that baseline internal dialogue is to keep changing other tangible frames of reference through applied meditation practices until that voice is so far away from the other voices that are much more positive, much more uh, gentle or proactive or, or whatever they need to be. Uh, then that's who I become and that's how I remember my, I remember myself. And I think we've touched on this a few times, but when it comes to something called neuroplasticity, your minimum entry point is going to be around 10 weeks of just constantly changing things 
and at a certain point your your neurological physiology says i i think we're supposed to be someone else now but if you want us to do that i mean you're gonna have to keep doing what you're doing because you know changing all these neuropathways is going to be expensive well, and again, the advice to uh, listen through to previous podcasts right. <laughs> makes more sense now. Um, and I'm just aware of the uh, the clock on the wall there. This has been a fairly in-depth conversation. Yeah, I kind of looked over at the clock over here and went, oh, maybe this could have been two, but oh well. Uh, that's okay. Um, this has been episode 27, Fusion Health Radio, and... Um, Cholesterol is not the problem, is the topic that Michael and I have been talking about. Fusion Health Radio is something kind of new and exciting for both Michael and I. Again, this is episode 27. If you've heard anything here that you have concerns or questions about or complaints, uh, the best way to get in touch with uh, Michael, because uh, he's the guy you want to complain to, not me, <laughs> um, about your health-related questions. Anything else, I'll be happy to uh, talk to you about. I'm just aware uh, how badly my posture just changed. <laughs> yeah. Fusion Health Radio. Uh, look for that on Facebook. You can reach us there. And uh, if you know someone who'd enjoy something that we said or you think may actually help them or steer them in the direction of health, uh, please do share this podcast with them. Um, as well, if you have found this podcast on either iTunes or Stitcher or Podbean or one of your favorite uh, podcast locations, uh, do us a favor and give us a thumbs up or a review or whatever it is that it's on that platform. Uh, let us know that you're listening and um, that'll give those uh, people who haven't found us yet uh, more confidence to actually tune in and listen to this uh, for their own health benefit. Yeah, there's a little invisible robot living inside of all of the computers and if you don't rate and review the shows, then it doesn't tell all of its invisible robot friends and all the other computers that it's a good show. So that's what we're doing is just giving those invisible robots a job. There you so, go. Yeah, help them out. Yeah. <laughs> Give those robots a job. Again, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this has been Fusion Health Radio. Thanks for listening, folks. And we will see you in the next podcast. Have a great day. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.